Well, if you have a Bible, I want you to join me as we come to the end of our series on the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, and uh, I just want to reiterate what we just sang because uh, it it perfectly ties in. But some of you may be familiar with that hymn. Uh, we'll, We'll even sing it again in a moment. But on Christ the solid rock I stand, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Today, it's all going to be about Christ and in Him alone. And and to kind of even begin our time this morning, you're going to see that this passage is actually kind of heavy and kind of hard. Uh, This is Jesus coming to the end, uh, to the conclusion of His Sermon on the Mount. And and what we've been trying to do is kind of imagine ourselves there on this mountainside as Jesus preaches and teaches the greatest sermon that's ever been shared before. And as He's coming here towards the end, I, I shared with you last week that in verse 12, He shared the golden rule, which was kind of the climactic point of his sermon. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But as he comes here to the end, before he leaves the people, is he shares these four warnings, but around it is this this undeniable truth of of hope that can be found, but he has to be honest enough, caring enough, loving enough to also share the warnings that are here at the end of this message in this wonderful sermon. And so I I wanted to read these last two verses of Matthew's gospel in Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29. And then we're going to hear these last words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. He says in verse 28 of Matthew 7, it says, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teachings, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. I know it's not on the screen, but today would be a I think a pertinent day to take notes for a variety of reasons. One, we're going to be going incredibly fast because I've preached through this sermon series before years ago. And uh, let's just say that today we're doing in one sermon what I did in five. So hang on tight. Um, Get your pen ready. Get your uh, pad ready in order to be able to follow along with what we're going through. But above all else is that Jesus speaks as one with authority because Jesus is the authority. We can argue with him, we can wrestle with him, but he is the authority, and what he says is true. You might be uncomfortable with it, 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 might, it might be difficult for you to maybe even hear, because it feels like maybe even here, he might be stepping on your toes just a little bit of your experiences and, and your history and your upbringing, maybe even in the life of the church or with your family, but we need to heed these words of Jesus this morning all of the Sermon on the Mount, but especially here as he comes to the conclusion. And so pray with me. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we're asking that we would have ears to hear what you have to say. And Father, that we would heed the warnings that Jesus is giving here at the end of this sermon so that we would take it in and that we would act on them, that we would be wise men and women who would not just merely be hearers of the word, but but, Father, that we would be obedient to what it is that you have to say. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So four warnings and a truth. The first warning is this. You're going to see it in verses 13 and 14. Look at what it says. It says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. This is the first warning that Jesus provides. The first warning is you must enter the kingdom of heaven and not merely admire it. And isn't that easy for us to do? We can admire the things of God, the teachings of Christ, but, but have we entered into a relationship with Jesus? And throughout even just these two verses, in these two verses, he shares two gates and that there are two roads and that there are two destinations and that there are two groups of people. And so let's take a look at these two gates, these two roads, these two destinations, and these two groups of people. Both the gates and the, the roads or the paths have similar language to them. There's a narrow gate and there's a wide gate. There's a narrow path and then there is a broad path. But what we find is that if you look at verse 13, it says enter. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't an idea for you to consider. This is actually in the imperative. This is a command from Jesus that if you've been hearing Jesus is saying, if you've been on this mountainside hearing this sermon, or maybe you just showed up and you've kind of come towards the end of the sermon. You got caught up at the market. You're getting some bread and some fish and you're showing up. And you're like, oh, there's Jesus talking. And he comes to the end and he says, enter. 
It's not just for anybody. This is for you. He's telling you, I'm commanding you, that you need to enter through the narrow gate. You don't do this by accident. We don't just simply come into a relationship with Jesus just because we want to. We don't just simply enter into the kingdom of heaven because, well, I'm a pretty good guy. There, there's an understanding that there, there is a, an act of volition of the will of where we are choosing to, 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 to repent and to humble ourselves before the Lord. But at times, if we're not careful, especially in a setting like this, is we could be a group of people who could say, well, you know, I like to study the Bible. I like to hear what Jesus has to say. I like to hear a good sermon about Jesus. I like to admire it, but it's not that we need to admire the teachings of Jesus. We need to enter this gate. We need to enter into the kingdom of heaven. There's a world today that admires even the gospel. There's, there's, worlds, there's, there's groups of, in the world today that will take the Sermon on the Mount and teach it in an English lit class or in a college lit class, and, and they'll study just the, the structure of it and, and how it is. It's an incredibly well-crafted sermon and lesson that's being taught here by Jesus. There are people who admire the, the works of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the ethics of Jesus. There are people who admire the cross of Jesus. They even wear that around their neck because, because it's, it's moving to them for some reason that maybe they can't quite explain. Some people are even admiring the fact that, wow, this guy Jesus came back from the dead. I, I even admire and I'm kind of interested in the study of the resurrection of Jesus. But here's the truth of the matter, and this is hard, but it is true. Hell will be filled with people who simply and only admired Jesus who admired the works of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, even the cross of Jesus, even the resurrection of Jesus. I don't want anyone within the sound of my voice in this room or online or in weeks or months to come, if you happen to stumble upon this message, to just simply be someone who says, I have a familiarity with Jesus and the things of Jesus. And this is a group of people that he's talking to that would have been primarily Jewish audience, God-fearing Jewish audience group who think, I am definitely entering into the kingdom of heaven because I'm Jewish. And at times, if we're not careful, especially for us in the South, I'm definitely entering the kingdom of heaven because, and there's a whole litany of things. There's a whole, there's a whole list of reasons of why we think we are entering in or that we're going to heaven but we have to heed the words of Jesus. What does he have to say? Well, first of all, he says that we are to enter through the narrow gate. The narrow gate, I picture it like this. Uh, have any of you ever gone through TSA at the airport? We have a couple that are about to go through TSA at the airport, and they're going to be uh, uh, being a part of uh, our partners there in the Dominican Republic. And as they're traveling, they got to go through security. And if you've ever gone through security at the airport, you, you can't go through, me and, me and Tiffany can't hold hands and be like, let's go through the TSA screen check thing together. You can't do that. It is, it is one at a time. I also can't be like, okay, you know what? Uh, I'm, I'm going to bring my luggage with me. You, you check your luggage at the counter, or if you have a carry-on, you check that luggage and it's got to go through the x-ray machine. And there have even been times where I'm like, I have a kidney disease, people. I need to drink this water. Don't make me throw away this water. Don't make me dump out this water. I need this water. And they say, no, 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 no. For you to enter through and to pass this screening and get through this point, you got to have nothing on you. They make you take your belt off. They make you take your shoes off. They make you walk through there in order to enter through that narrow process. The same is true that when we come to saving faith in Christ, it's not a group project that we have. Once we are saved in Christ, we enter into the group and the community of faith that is the church. But to enter into a relationship with Jesus, this has got to be something that is personal to you, to where you understand, I, I have sin in my life that needs to be checked. I have baggage in my life that, that I need to take to Jesus and leave at the foot of the cross so that I can enter into a relationship with him by his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. Some of you, I, I've heard the story countless times and you're going to hear this a lot today. The today is not to cause you to doubt your salvation. Today is to cause you to examine your salvation. And that makes us uncomfortable at times because you're like, I, I don't want to, I don't, I don't, I don't want to have to doubt that. I, I understand that, but I also don't want you to be wishy-washy of if something were to happen to me today, where's my eternity? You want to know that with confidence and with truth, not based upon your experiences, but based upon the authority of God's word, because that's the authority. Jesus, again, is the authority. So, have you ever entered 
through that narrow gate that is Jesus. And some people, haven't you heard it said in Christianity that we can be too exclusive or narrow-minded? But apparently to Jesus, that's a positive thing. That we would go through the narrow gate and that we would walk on that narrow path. But the wide gate, the wide gate almost seems to be something that as we walk through this life that we don't even have to enter. It seems to just kind of be the natural default setting. We're just automatically walking that, that wide, through that wide gate. And then we're on one of these two roads, either the broad road or the narrow road. We're on this journey of life. Again, if you're on the, entering through the narrow gate and you're walking on the narrow path, it might just be you and it might just be you at times to where it's so narrow, you don't even have somebody next to you. Maybe somebody behind you, someone in front of you, but at times you feel alone. But God with his grace and his goodness says you are never alone. Some of you may feel that way right now. Some of you, I know 2021 has been something to where you miss 2020. Uh, that's been the case in our life. Like, like it's at times where it feels isolating and alone at times to walk the narrow path because you entered through the narrow gate in a relationship with Jesus. It's not always sunshine and roses. Sometimes it's incredibly difficult. And it's as if you're on this precipice of, of either side, just looking to, 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 to the edge, but you're saying this is worth walking on this path because I know where it leads. This, this isn't just a road that's meandering to nowhere. It's leading to an ultimate destination, kingdom of heaven, to be a part in the presence of the Lord forever and ever. And if ever we feel alone, this is the beauty of God. Even at times, because we enter into a relationship on our own, and at times there are gonna be moments where I'm, I'm on this individual walk with the Lord. And even if you've experienced something similar to what I've experienced, even if you're going through something and we're, we're at the same time in the same church, I'm still the one, even, even in a relationship with Tiffany, with my wife, to where we can relate and we can commiserate and we can talk to one another about the difficulties that we are experiencing maybe as individuals or as a couple. But you know what happens when I put my head on my pillow at night? It's my thoughts, my heart, my anxiety, my depression, my struggles, my weaknesses, my frailties, my life between me and God. And you've been there too. And so it comes to a point of where when you do lay your head on your pillow and you know, yeah, I have the church, I have these close relationships, but this is my mind and my heart that I got to deal with the Lord. Remember this, he didn't leave you alone. He gave you his spirit. You're never alone. Though you may feel, don't let your feelings deceive you. Know the truth that you are never alone. Through entering that narrow gate, God gives you the comforter. He gives you the paraclete. He gives you the Holy Spirit to walk and navigate through this life so that you're never, ever alone. But if you've walked just naturally through that wide gate, you walk that broad path, you know what we can do if you're on a wide gate, a broad path? You can bring all the luggage and the baggage that you want on that journey. And you can walk by as many people as you want and you'll find one group that they'll support you in this mindset or this lifestyle. And then they begin to turn on you because have you not noticed how culture shifts over time? Today looks a little bit different than the 90s. The 90s looked a lot different than the 60s. The 60s looked a lot different than so on and so forth. Culture shifts, culture changes. And so you see people ping pong and going, well, I'll be a part of this group now. And I'll walk through life with them. And I'll be a part of this group now. And I'll walk through life with them. You can find that on a broad path. On a narrow path, not so much. But this is the beauty that you might say, man, if I go through the narrow gate, narrow path, that's hard. But my, my dad, he's a bit of an artist and he drew this painting years ago and it's hanging up in my parents' home of where there's this little sheep and there's this little gate and this little sheep is going through this little gate and you see this narrow little path that you're going to see eventually like that's what the sheep's going to be walking on. But as, as that sheep journeys on, you can see that that path actually kind of begins there at the end to open wide up. Kingdom of heaven. Here's what happens, I believe, for those who enter that broad gate, live that broad life. You don't realize it, but you're being funneled down into a life that it says is destruction. Whereas if you have faith in Christ, though it may be difficult at times, man, it opens up into a glorious life, eternal life. So what, what journey are you on? And are you saying, I've counted the cost, it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it to be on this narrow path. It's absolutely worth it to have some restrictions and some parameters in my life that are according to God's word and his authority because it's given me life and life eternal, life abundant now, life eternal in eternity.
So it's worth it. I've counted the cost. I want to be in relationship with Christ. I'm going to enter that narrow gate. Some of you may remember a few weeks ago, I shared with you that Tiffany and I had the chance to go to the Grand Canyon. And uh, it was so much fun. We enjoyed it. And I told you, I always wanted to get to the Colorado River that's there at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. There's two ways that you can go. You can go that narrow path and you can walk and you kind of zigzag, takes you forever. And you're finally getting down there. You got to maybe go do a little up, a little bit down, a little bit around. You got to do a little single file action from time to time. You got to be careful. The other option is you just fling yourself over the edge and tumble and just see if that doesn't cause you some element of destruction. The answer is it will. So there's two destinations. One destination is life. One destination is destruction. The broad path, the broad gate leads to destruction. Here's a statement that you may not have heard very often, but it is the truth. Hell is the default destination of men and women, not heaven. That's not fun to hear, but it is the truth. Hell is the default destination because we are born into sin. not heaven. Sadly, I believe that we, all of us, have grown up in a time, in a culture, in a setting where we believe, many believe, and live most of their life thinking that heaven, heaven is my default destination, but sin is a reality, hell is a reality. And so the question can be posed from a group like this, and I love questions. This is a good, honest question of hearing that kind of statement, that hell is the default destination, is how could a good and loving God send me or anyone to hell? It's a great question. I remind you, God is holy. Let it sink in. Because sometimes we say that and like, ah, it's just one of those things. No, 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 no. God is holy. That means that he is set apart from anything that is unholy. And he made a holding pin. This is kind of the way that I describe it. He made a holding pin, a place in which to cast sin. And if your sin or your baggage in your life has never been repented of, forgiven because you've humbled yourself before Christ, then you die with that sin. You die with that baggage never being dealt with by the work of Jesus on your behalf. All you did was merely admire him and you go where your sin goes. Hell. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. He's a great preacher from the 1800s. He says, you and your sins must, must separate or you and God cannot come together. I love that. You and your sins, they must separate or you and God cannot come together. Not one sin may you keep. They must all be recognized for what they are. Another way to put it is check your baggage at the cross. Check your sin at the cross. Forsake your sin, abhor your sin and ask the Lord to help you to overcome And you're like, can can he possibly help me overcome the sin in my life, the things that I've struggled with? And friends, Jesus has overcome your sin when he cried out upon the cross to tell us die, it is finished. He has the ability and the authority to overcome your sin. But if we're not careful, as I mentioned before, we wear that necklace, we wear that cross around our neck, we have it up in our homes and we look upon it, we admire it. And all it will be is another witness against you of why all you did was admire it. You never submitted to the work of the cross of Jesus. You never received that work for what he did for you. So don't admire the cross, run to the foot of the cross, cry out for grace, cry out for mercy, cry out forgiveness. And he's not going to save you, forgive you, grant you mercy just because we want him to. He saves you, grants you mercy because that's who he is. And based upon the authority of God's word, not your experience, you will have it. One of the things that breaks my heart is when I visit with people and I'm like, how do you, tell me your story. One, if you're hesitant to tell me your story of how you come to know Christ, I always get a little bit just nervous because I'm like, this is your story of your eternity. Why can't you share this? If it's true, but we live in a culture and especially in the South where you knock on the door and we could ask, you know, do you believe in Jesus? Yes. The next question should be, then who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus? How do you know that you know that your sins have been forgiven, that you were separated from your sins and in the presence of a holy God, that the spirit of God dwells within you? Some people go, well, you know, I had this goose bump bump moment in my life. I was at camp and the music started swelling and they said, come walk the aisle. And if you fill out this card, you will be saved. And I'm like, cards don't save you. Jesus saves you. 
So, so we come to recognize it's not based upon an experience, though we do experience God. It's based upon the work of Christ and submitting to that and saying that's the authority of why I know that I know that I know that when I breathe my last, I'll open my eyes and I'll see Jesus because of God and what he has accomplished and the authority of his word. Because Jesus speaks as one who has authority because he is the authority. But sadly, as it says, there's two roads or two gates, two roads, two destinations, and there are two groups. There's going to be many and few. Our hope and desire would always be that many would come to enter the narrow gate, but apparently, according to Jesus, few are going to enter through the narrow gate. And that's heartbreaking. Let that settle with you for a moment. Don't be the individual who goes, well, I got mine. I know Jesus. I've entered through the narrow gate. Recognize that there are many who are going to walk that, through that wide gate along that broad path and their default destination is not heaven. They haven't encountered the living God just yet. But you could be a part of leading them there. One, one of the things that I wanted to show you is this gate imagery, maybe because of that uh, painting that my dad had of the sheep there at the, at the, at the gate. Um, it made me think of this passage out of the book of John. Can we show that first picture, Kay? I wanted to show you this. So in... In Israel, this would not be an unusual thing to see in this day and time. Of This would be what's a sheep pen. Maybe a little bit different than maybe what you pictured before. But here's the opening, and this is where the sheep would be. And so a shepherd would, would bring the sheep. And, and right here, this is like, you, they would call it a gate or they would call it a, a door. Can we show the next one? So then this next image is the sheep are all here inside of this pen. And then here's the door. But again, the, the door or the gate is not a thing, the door or the gate is a person. When you enter into a relationship with Jesus, when Jesus is talking about this narrow gate, Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 7, and John chapter 10, verse 9, I am the door, or I am the gate. If we enter through Jesus, the beauty of it is this. He's the one who stands guard. He's the one who protects. He's the one who overcomes. Are you in his pen, if you will. Is, is this your life? Is Jesus the gate or the door of your life? Hope and pray that he is. That's the first warning. Let's look at the second warning. There are two fruits, two fruits. There are many ways to be deceived, but only one way to be delivered. There are many ways to be deceived, but one way to be delivered. You may want to go through that narrow gate, enter that narrow gate, walk on that narrow path. But we have to be cautious and be aware that there are going to be people who would seek to lead us astray. Now, there are some who would deceive us in such a fashion, but not often, who would say, hey, follow me this way. This is a life of just debauchery and however you want to live. Hell is this way. That's not very often. It can happen, but that doesn't seem to be the way. Generally, this seems to be kind of a deceptive type teaching, uh, alluring type teaching. Most will probably pick and choose bits of scripture, just enough scripture to kind of entice you or to bring you in. He says here that these are false prophets that we should beware of. Beware of false prophets. He goes on in verse 15 and says, They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are they. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. A prophet, a prophet was someone who was called by God to deliver content from God to the people. Say that again. This is what a prophet is. A prophet is someone who was called by God to deliver content from God to the people. Oftentimes when we think of a prophet, we think of prophecy in the sense of future telling. It's not necessarily true. A prophet is not a future teller. A prophet is a forth teller, F-O-R-T-H. That's what a prophet is. Because when a prophet speaks forth the words of God, think of Isaiah or Micah. Remember when Micah, in Micah chapter, I think it's 5-2 or 2-5, he talks about how there's going to be the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem. Well, that's hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus is born in Bethlehem. 
So is he telling the future? Yes, but really what he's telling is he's just speaking forth the words of God who is outside of time. And God's just speaking the truth. And so when Micah shares it, it sounds like future telling to us because it is predicting something in the future, but it's just God just speaking the truth. That's a prophet. He speaks the words of God. But then there were false prophets. False prophets were deceivers or individuals who said, "Hmm, I don't want to be called by God. I'm going to call myself. And I'm not going to share God's content. I'm going to share my content. And I'm going to see what I can gain out of it. There's a few groups of these, and we don't have time to go into all of it, but there are are heretics who are just openly defying God. There are apostates who once said, I follow the Lord, and then they kind of wander away and they try to bring people with them. And then there's just flat out deceivers. These are the ones that are more subtle, the ones that we need to be on the lookout for. These are people who talk about Jesus, talk about the Holy Spirit, talk about the cross, talk about love, and talk about the Bible. One way to put it that I heard one guy say is they have the language of a prophet, but they don't have the life of a prophet. They don't back it up. They don't practice what they preach. So what Jesus calls us to be are fruit watchers, that we would watch people's fruit, that we would see, are, are, are they saying something that is true and it lines up with the rest of scripture. And then also, what do we see from the product of their life? In the same way, if I told you that I have an apple tree at my house and you're like, "Uh, okay, uh, I guess I believe you. I said, no, 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 I have an apple tree at my house. And you go, okay, well, I need you to prove it. Bring an apple. I would prove and demonstrate that there's an apple tree. If I show up with a lemon, you're going to be like, you don't know what an apple is. Get your brain checked. I mean, it's, it's just one of those things of where, where, where fruit inspectors seeing is what someone's saying. Does it line up with Scripture? Is it true? And we got to be careful because there are individuals that you can see on, on YouTube or you can see on your television, you can hear on the radio, whatever it may be, that just because they have a platform doesn't mean that it was granted to them by God. Just because they're behind a pulpit doesn't mean that they are called by God. It's that we would be like the Bereans in the book of Acts, that we would hear what they have to say and examine it with the rest of Scripture to understand that are they speaking the truth. There's a few things that you might want to watch out for because I imagine not all of you are going to be here forever. You, you're, you may move, and you're going to be in another church, and, and the question comes of well, where does God want me to be? What church does He want me to be a part of? And oftentimes, I don't think this should be, but oftentimes a reason why we be a, or, or decide to join a church has to do with, does the guy make me laugh enough? Is he interesting enough? Is he saying something? Because I'm going to get at least a half an hour to 45 minutes, in my case, maybe an hour, of what this guy is saying week in and week out. And so is he worth listening to of what he has to say from, from Scripture? So these are some things that you would examine. His teaching, yes, but his character. As time goes on, is there greed? Is there a desire for power? And is there a desire for, for, for women? Oftentimes when you see men fall from this position, it's not always, but oftentimes it's in one of those three areas. Their character is maligned either by power, money, or women. The other is their attitude. As, as you listen to someone, listen to what they have to say, but as you watch them live their life, are they proud? Are they jealous? Are they egotistical? Is there an ounce of humility? When they teach, do they teach the whole counsel of God's word? This is a big one for me. I, I, I have some friends of mine that I know that they love the Lord, but just a little bit different of philosophy of how to teach. As you guys have seen and experienced over the last year, I want us to take what God has to say and then pull out from it that we would expose the word of God, that we would see what he has to say, as opposed to coming to you with an idea of being like, let's talk about your marriage. Let's make your marriage is really strong. And I'm going to pick and choose different passages of marriage. Nothing wrong with that per se, but I'd rather us go as we're going to go through in the month of May, the book of Ruth, and be like, let's look at a loving, nurturing relationship, a verse at a time, and see what God has to say about a healthy relationship between a man and between a woman. We want to take the word of God. We want to expose it. We want to preach the full counsel of God's word. We don't want to just simply just look at the New Testament. We want to look at the Old Testament. We want to look at the book of Psalms. We want to look at the book of Proverbs. We want to look at the book of Revelation. We want to look at the full counsel of God's word as to what he has to say. We want to hold up. We don't want to be those that you may be seeing this. Hold up the Bible, talk about the Bible, and then they close the Bible, put the Bible down, and then they never say anything from the Bible. 
my preaching professor told me, and some of you would be like, you need to adopt this and live it out, is he said some of the best things that you could do as a pastor is just get up and read the Word of God, sit back down, it'll be the best sermon you ever preach. Because what people need to hear more of is the Word of God and less from the men of God. They need the Word. We need the Word. We also got to be careful of the of deceivers that would want there to be this sense of, here's the way that you can enter into the kingdom of God, and it's this easy believism. It's this sense of, it's really simple. All you got to do is just walk this aisle, say this prayer, whatever it may be. Those are powerful things and powerful moments. But as you guys have seen, it's something that I believe is so, so, so important, and it's so crucial, is I don't want to... I don't want to stifle what the Holy Spirit is doing and try to take over for what He is doing in someone's life. But the last thing I want to do as a pastor, as a shepherd of a flock, is just go, you love Jesus? Okay, good, you're saved. And we never have a conversation about it. That, that we never have a moment of being able to say, tell, tell me why you know that you know that, that your sins are forgiven. And it's not a quiz, it's a conversation. I, I've seen pastors that it would, just, it, would, it would frustrate me to no end where we'd be at children's camp and, and these children would be walking the aisle, and they would be going, and they would put them, take them into these rooms to be able to talk with these counselors and these people who had never been trained in sharing their faith, but they were an adult in a cabin who brought kids, and they would sit them down, and they would sit across from one another, and it's just chaotic, and there's all this noise going on, and there's all these things happening, and then they're looking at one another, and I'm not saying that God cannot work in this situation. He absolutely can. I've seen it time and time again, but, but the last thing I want to do is go, hey, hey, little Tommy. Do you love Jesus? Yeah. Do you want to go to hell? No. Do you want to give your life to Jesus? Yeah. Hope that it's true. There, there have been moments, even in the church that I pastored before, especially not just with children, but adults of all ages, of people saying, Pastor, I want to get baptized. Awesome. Why? Baptism is a wonderful, wonderful step of obedience in your relationship to the Lord. Why? I baptized a child, and other children would come up to me, and they'd go, Pastor Stephen, can I get baptized? I, would, I used it as an opportunity. I didn't see this as a negative. I saw this as a positive. Of They saw baptism, and it's doing what baptism should do. It should cause people to go, well, I want that. And it's like, good. Now it's bridging us into a conversation of, why do you want that? Well, it looks cool. It is cool. But, man, let's get to the heart of the issue, because what I don't want to have is I don't want you to be a six-year-old we're a 16-year-old, we're a 26-year-old, that I said, walk this, do that, pray this, and it was never a personal relationship between you and Jesus. And then you are looking up at 36 years of age or 66 years of age, and you're like, where do I stand with God? That guy told me that I'm saved. But what does God see in me? Now, we got to be careful with it, because then you can go to the other extreme. And this is what we do as human beings, isn't it? We go to one extreme or the other because of a reactionary thing. We go to one extreme of like, well, we won't even offer an invitation because heaven forbid that we would confuse someone. I'm, no, I want us to have a chance to respond to God's word. Or we go to the other extreme and we just make it as whatever you want. You want to go to heaven? Yeah, you get to go to heaven. My desire is that we as a people, is we would say, is God working in your heart? Maybe right now God is working in your heart. He's saying, don't base it upon an experience or your upbringing. Do you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Why do you proclaim that? Why do you confess that as your truth? Is it based upon the authority of Jesus' work on the cross and His Word? If it's anything other than that, beware. Jesus is, is not saying this, to, again, to cause us to doubt. He's saying this because... Your soul is at stake. Eternity is at stake. I love the fact that he ends the sermon with such dramatic issue and consequence. He doesn't want anybody to, to meander their life and think that they're on the narrow path, but really you're on the wide. And it's leading to destruction. Now we gotta we gotta hurry up. So Warning number three. Warning number three. Hang on tight. Okay. Warning number three, verse 21. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. This is perhaps the most terrifying scripture. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Lord, Lord would be, you are sincere. You are very sincere of, I know who you are. You are the Lord. But he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many, again, that word many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's something that I've stolen from Henry Blackaby experiencing God's study. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship with Jesus. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to rifle through this really, really quickly. When you see there, when he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? When I think of prophesying, you sound like a Christian. When you pray, you, you incorporate that christian kind of stuff. Lord, I pray a hedge of protection around us and bless these hands that prepare the food. All fine things, but sometimes we're just repeating what we've heard. We sound the part. Or we serve every opportunity we have, even though I'm purely exhausted and I'm not serving the Lord, I'm serving to kind of be seen. I'm, I'm, I'm doing what I can. I lift my hands in worship. I have the language of a Christian. And what is happening is people can see you prophesy and teach. They can see you sound like a Christian. The other is, he says here, the casting out demons. Casting out demons would be you look like a Christian. You got the cross around your neck. Maybe you got a little healing rag or some holy water. You got the biggest fattest 1611 original KJV version of the Bible, and you're like, I look the part of a Christian. Like, I got everything that you need. I got it all on my, on my utility belt. And again, in the same way that people can see you prophesy, people can see you cast out a demon. What about performing miracles? That's acting like a Christian. You get to do some awesome things. You go on a mission trip. You suffer for Jesus. You see the God, a hand of God at work. You experience something that is beyond you. And again, people can see you perform the miracle. It says many, remember the wide gate, the wide path, the broad path. Many will confess those who believe that they know Jesus, do things for him, say things in his name, and yet not be a part of Jesus. That's, to me, terrifying. I've grown up in church, I've done the Bible study thing, I've served, I've done all these things, but do I know Jesus? heard one guy put it this way, we all know who the president is. You know his name, you know what he looks like. But do you know him? This idea of, I never knew you, is not just a knowledge like head knowledge, it's, it's an intimate relational sense of knowing someone. I know this person. I imagine that most of you don't know the president. But you know who he is. You say, well, God, God knows everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not that God doesn't know who you are. He knows exactly who you are. But does he know you because you've entered the narrow gate in a relationship with Christ? Have you humbled yourself, repented of your sin? And this is the thing. People can see you prophesy. People can see you cast out demons. People can see you perform miracles. You sound like, look like, act like a Christian. Here's the real issue. Does God see you? People can see you, but does God see you? Does he see Christ in you? When he looks at you, does he see Jesus because you have given your life to Jesus Christ? Only way to have this kind of relationship and not just religious activity is in a relationship in genuine faith with Christ. And there would have been individuals hearing these words of Jesus on this mountainside, utterly shocked and perhaps even devastated of, I've done some of these incredible things. What does that mean? I don't want anyone in this room or anyone watching to, to be deceived or to fool themselves into thinking, because I've done this or experienced that, therefore that means that Jesus knows me. Because even, even the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit can be imitated. You know that, right? You think, oh, well, I, I have the gifting of the Holy Spirit. I'm doing something. Remember when Moses threw down the staff, turned into a serpent? And the magicians there in Pharaoh's court threw down the staffs, they turned into serpents? Do you, do you think that we don't have a great enemy? the prince of the air who does have power in this present age to be able to do things that look supernatural enough, are supernatural enough to fool us and to hook us and to sink our teeth into us, to be that ravenous wolf because he doesn't want you to go down the path that leads to life. He wants you destroyed because God finds you valuable and he wants to destroy anything that God finds valuable. Jesus is saying, I care too much, not about your feelings, but about your soul to spare your feelings. I'm going to tell you the truth. So hopefully the truth will truly set you free. It's probably one of the hardest things for me as a pastor is ever preaching verses 21, 22, and 23. Because again, I don't know anyone's heart. I don't know your heart. I don't know your story, but you do. And it could be a time like this of where you examine yourself and you're like, am I truly a part of Christ? 
if I respond to something like this, what will other people think? So fear and embarrassment or whatever it may be may prevent you. Um, I remember when I was in seminary. If you don't know what seminary is, seminary is graduate school for people who feel called into ministry. So hopefully by that point, if you feel called, you have a relationship with Jesus. I can remember being in a chapel service. We'd have chapel three days a week. And there's this individual who he was hearing chapel speaker preach. It was midway through the semester. And this guy who felt called to ministry recognized through the preaching of God's word and his counsel that in that moment, God grabbed his attention and grabbed his heart for the first time. Even though he grew up in church, went on to seminary to teach other people about Jesus, and he recognized, I've never left my baggage, my sin, at the foot of the cross. I've never repented and humbled myself in saving faith in Christ. And the glorious thing was, well, the unfortunate thing is there were some individuals at seminary like, man, how did they let him through the cracks? Those are the kind of people that I, I want to take my hand and just karate chop them right in the throat. Because you're more concerned about what this looks like upon our institution than it does for this man's soul. So if you're an individual, you're like, man, I'm, I'm an old man. Or I've been a part of the church for a long time. Or if, 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 if I have this kind of conversation of, Am I in Christ? Have I entered into a personal relationship with Him? And my parents heard about this? Man, they might get frustrated or disappointed in me because, because of... And, and we have all of these reasons. And Jesus is so, so just passionately laying out on the line, man, I want you to know that you're saved. Don't base it on experience. Base it upon a person. His name is Jesus. His work on the cross. Last thing I want to read to you is this. Look at verse 24 through 27. We now have two foundations. The last warning. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. We're going to show you a video of this actual situation that happened. Um, you may not recognize this or know this, but there was actually a 911 call made during this. And so if you guys would, let's play that, turn it up nice and loud. 911 emergency services, what's your emergency? Yeah, can I build my house on sand? What? Okay, wait, let me rephrase that. I built my house on sand. What do you think of that? This isn't a line for advice. It's going to be okay though, right? This is a line for emergencies only. Okay, because it's raining right now, the water's rising, and my house is floating away. That's like a recipe for an emergency, wouldn't you say? Why build your house on sand? Can you say that again? Can you repeat that? The wind is straight up beating against my house. Quiet wind, quiet. Why would you build your house on sand? Well, beachfront property and all that. I love the ocean air through the windows, but I find I don't really care for the ocean waves coming through the windows. We can send <laughs> someone to your location. Yeah, that's great. What's your address? Currently, under the water, bottom of the ocean. My mailbox is submerged. I'm not getting my mail today. How will we find you? Or you can use my neighbor as a beacon. He's one wise guy. He built his house up on a big rock. It is solid. Not going to fall with all this bad weather. I know the place. A residency has no hesitancy, you know what I mean? I do. That domicile is worthwhile if you catch my drift. I get it. That habitation has fortification, one might say. Sir, that's enough. You know, I can't really help but feel like this whole scenario is an illustration or a parable for how foolish it would be to build a house on what is a less than firm foundation. But what do I know? It does seem foolish. I'd love to chat some more. I'm going to go because my second floor is now my first floor and my breakfast is getting all soggy. It's lunchtime, sir. Good talk, good talk. Sir, if I can I'll get... I'll talk to you later. Sir, sir. Uh, he hung up. One, I wanted to show that to you just so that little levity in the light of such a serious passage. But will you heed the words of Christ and what it is that he has to say? These last few verses, it's... You've got to hear. You've got to hear the word and act upon it. It's not just enough to hear it. you also got to act upon it. You may have noticed in verse 24 and in verse 26, 
the ones who hear the words of Jesus and acts on them. Again, we don't just admire the words of Jesus, we act upon them. We're a wise man who would build our house upon a rock if we would do so. Some people take this and they go, oh, well, the rock is God because God is the rock. Sure, that's true, God is the rock. Some people will say, well, the rock is Jesus because Jesus is the, you know, the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. And yes, that is true, but I don't believe that that's the case in this scenario. The, the rock is the word and the words of Jesus, the word of God. And the wisdom that we have is if we act upon it. The true thing that's going to bring wisdom and, and joy within your life is that you would hear these, these foundational words of Christ throughout all of Scripture, hear the entire counsel of God's Word, and that you would act upon it, that you would be obedient to it. That when we would hear that, that when it says that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we would hear that and we would respond to that. That we would hear that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you would hear that and act upon that, I mean, you, you will experience God coming into your life through faith in Jesus. The truth of God's word become this rock bed foundation for our lives as individuals and as the church. Some people can hear these verses of Jesus talking about the narrow gate and feel like it sounds incredibly exclusive. Some have even stated that these words and this kind of hard language is maybe a little bit too much because we're talking about the reality of hell and heaven and how could someone dare have the audacity to say that the only means of salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone? That the only means of forgiven sin is that? Isn't that narrative harmful? That's the question. Is that narrative harmful? No. If it's true. If it's true, it's not harmful. It's incredibly helpful and kind. Two years ago, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. We thought we had a few weeks for him to be able to get some testing done before we would have to possibly look at treatment. He got some testing done in early November of December 2019. And within a couple of weeks, that cancer just took over and just began to deteriorate his body where they had to rush him to the emergency room, lost an incredible amount of weight, literally, as the doctor would tell us, was on death's door. And it was in that moment as he and my mom and my middle brother are there in that hospital, they're looking at my dad, and they're looking at my brother, my mom, and it's like, he has cancer. He is going to die unless there's a treatment. Hard, harsh, not the kind of conversation you want to have, but helpful, not harmful. Conversation that we're hearing from Jesus today is helpful, not harmful. The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, and this is what I want us to do in our time of response. He says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Let today either be the day of your salvation, or let today be the day where you once again examine your salvation in Christ. And my hope is that as you examine, you rejoice and go, by your grace and your mercy, according to the authority of Christ, his work on the cross and your word, I am saved. If you can't declare that confidence, then just a moment, I want you to visit with me. That we can set up an opportunity to not have a whispered, quiet conversation, but a real conversation about what it means to come to faith in Christ. If you would bow your head, close your eyes. The reason I ask you to bow your head and close your eyes is, yeah, we're almost done, but it's not for you to check out. It's for you to hopefully check in. Has God spoken to you this morning? I hope that he has through his word. Here's what I ask you to do. Don't be deceived. You've heard the truth. It's not harmful. It's helpful. You've heard the truth of what it is to enter into God's kingdom. The kingdom of heaven. 
you got to enter through the narrow gate. you got to enter into a relationship with Jesus. Don't be deceived by your experiences or your history, your heritage, or any of that. Are you in Christ and Christ alone? Humble yourself today. <laughs> throw, throw it all aside. Your soul's at stake. If someone here looks down on you a little bit because they thought for years because of different capacities that you've served in that you definitely are someone who has a relationship with the Lord, but you're not certain, don't let any thought of another person in this room cause you to to withhold your pursuit and your seeking after God for salvation and hope. In just a moment, I'm going to be up here again. And, and if that's you, I, mean, I would love to visit with you and we'll set up a time to talk and have a real conversation about your eternity and about your soul. And for others of you, in a moment we're going to sing again on Christ the solid rock I stand. I ask that we would book in this right before the sermon and after the sermon because if this is true of you, I want you to declare with a loud voice, with a confident voice, with, with, with a voice of praise and gratitude and humility and just power that my, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I don't, I don't trust in anything else, but man, I, I lean on the name of Jesus. I have a hope and a confidence because He is the authority. He's the authority of my life. So in just a moment, I, I, I hope that you'll do one of two things. Either you'll come and visit with me, or you will sing like you've never sang before because you are in Christ. And that's worthy to be praised. So Father, may we be obedient to you. May we hear your words and act upon them. That we would be wise men and women. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys stand? Either come talk to me or sing.